the Apostle Paul in this very brief passage today in Romans chapter 10 is reminding us, brothers and sisters in the church, reminding us just what a great opportunity we've been given to bring good news to others around us, to be able to be the ones who share not just any good news, but the good news with those that God brings into our own lives. So in our passage, we're looking particularly at, first of all, a connection between, between belief and confession. You see, Paul, as he's writing to those in Rome, in the church, he is reminding them as he comes to the place in verse 15 about uh, encouragement of sharing this good news. He's reminding them of the connection between what it means to believe and what it means to profess or confess with one's mouth. And he's doing so because he's wanting them to realize that when we've received or believed, truly received by believing in faith, the gospel, that it doesn't just stop there, that it goes further in us and then through us and out of us. That there is something that happens within us that only God himself does that causes us to want to even proclaim this amazing understanding and acceptance that we've been given in Christ. And so first understanding both parts of what Paul is talking about here between belief and confession or professing, professing of one's faith. Paul's clarifying what is really important about both parts. First, he says in verse 9, And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe in your heart, belief, another word for belief is faith. What is saving faith? What is faith that actually saves someone towards to internal life? Saving faith has three aspects to it. And if you've heard this before, maybe this will encourage you towards your own faith. If you've never understood what saving faith is, that which God brings us to himself with, it's a gift he gives us, Ephesians chapter 2, then understand that the kind of faith that God gifts us to express unto him towards salvation has three aspects. First, there is knowledge. If you know, you understand what the basic truth is of the gospel. You understand what your need is. You understand what Christ has done for you on the cross. You understand all that he has accomplished in forgiving and saving you. And you understand what is necessary for that to happen. But not just understanding and having knowledge is enough for saving faith. It's also important to not just know these truths or this truth, but it's also important to agree with it, to truly agree with your mind and your heart. You embrace what truth has been given to you, and you accept it, and you agree with it. You not only acknowledge it, but you truly then understand it in agreement in your own heart. After you have known and agreed with that truth of the gospel, then you trust in that truth. You trust in the person who has given you such wonderful news. You trust 
what Jesus has done for you. You trust him in all that he has done for you. And so knowledge, agreement, and commitment, trust to that very truth is what saving faith is made up of. You know, it's not enough just to come and come to a church, whether it be Christ Community or another church any Sunday morning or every Sunday morning, and just sit, listen, hopefully, to the gospel being proclaimed, to understand it, and to listen and appreciate some helpful thoughts from the preacher that day, to sit under the preaching of truth from God's word. You have to personally understand what is being said and agree in your heart with what's being said. And then after agreeing, trust in the very one who has given us these truths. It has a whole full understanding of what it means to trust and place our faith. You agree that you absolutely need what Christ is offering to you. You absolutely agree and commit and trust that there is no other, no other way to be saved. No other way to have eternal security except through him, except what he has done for us. Saving faith. It's also important to note that saving faith is always accompanied by what? Repentance. Faith and repentance always go together hand in hand. When someone is being called to become a child of God and God reaches their heart and brings them to himself, there's always a response of not only faith and trust and commitment, but the heart's understanding of what repentance means, turning away from our life of sin, our life of self-centeredness, of only thinking about ourselves to the Lord Jesus himself. So repentance and faith go hand in hand together. Both are absolutely necessary when we think of someone being converted, being brought into a relationship with the living God, saving faith. But the other part besides faith that he's talking about here, or belief, is our confession, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You know, the first and obvious meaning we know of this word declare or confess with your mouth is an outward and audible declaration of what it is that we have understood and trusted to believe. To publicly and audibly profess, proclaim that we have trusted in Christ. This is, if you declare with your mouth, what it means. But there are many other ways to profess or confess the Lord as our Savior, as our Redeemer, our Rescuer. There are many other ways, but certainly speaking, we must understand not less than that, but certainly not limited to speaking publicly or audibly about Christ in our heart and in our life. There's public worship. We're gathering together right now. That's an important part of confessing Christ. Pro just being here, you're professing Christ. Did you realize that? Just being, sitting right here right now amongst those who are also following the Lord and wanting to do so, that is a profession in itself. There are many, many people, and you probably know this already, but many who do not come to a church on Sunday morning, who do everything else they want to do with their lives but be 
with God's people worshiping the Lord together. So the fact that you're kind of doing something that many, many in the world do not do shows a difference in your intentions and your desires in your life. Who you're following, how you are following. So public worship, gathering together. The sacraments are another important part of professing and confessing Christ together. Baptism, when you receive the sign of baptism, that is a clear outward expression that we are the Lord's, that we are seeing his covenant fulfilled in our life, whether a child all the way to an adult, when the sign of God's covenant is placed upon that person, that is an outward sign to all the world that God has brought us salvation and we are in his covenant community or covenant family. What a declaration that is to have the baptism. Also, the Lord's table. When you partake of the Lord's table, which we do every month together, and we feed upon the body and the blood of Christ as they are there representing all that he has done for us and his spiritual presence is with us as we partake of that wonderful sacrament. Even Paul reminds us when we read it every time we take communion in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, and when you eat and drink, you are what? Professing the Lord's death until he comes. We are literally professing, confessing the Lord and what he has done for us every time we take those elements. Together, we are making a statement. Also, being with and loving God's people. That is a way in which we confess and declare that the Lord is, that we are the Lord's. Declaring that together, being with and loving God's people. 1 John chapter 3 says that our love is shown in how we are with those in the body of Christ. How we love others shows our love and profession for Christ. And then, of course, how we live our life is a clear profession of our faith. How do you conduct your business Monday through Friday? How do you conduct your business in the workplace? How you live out your faith in the workplace is a clear profession of your faith. And that's a difficult place to be, to truly confess and profess with your life how you live out your faith in school, whether you're in middle school, high school, elementary, college, when you're around fellow students in the classroom, outside the classroom, when you're hanging out wherever you are with your peers, how you live your life is either a profession for or possibly against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So these are ways in which we also can confess besides speaking with our voices who Christ is and how we follow him. But not only the nature of belief and confession we understand what those two elements that Paul speaks of in verse 9 are about. We have to ask the question, are belief and confession or profession, are they separable? Can they be separated? We have to ask that question. Well, verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul keeps them together. He keeps them together here. Very important. Belief and profession, as Paul presents them, are not separate, but they are together. They belong together, as the scripture reminds us. Jesus himself said these words in Matthew 10. 
Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Jesus himself said we are called, if we are his, to acknowledge who he is before others in this world. We're called to do that. It's one thing to say, well, I believe in him secretly. That's very different than truly, willingly, with a heart of courage and trust in him, declaring you're his and you're following him at all costs. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. Robert Haldeen, a 19th century revival leader, a Swiss leader in the revival, said these words, Confession of Christ is as necessary as faith in him, but necessary for a different purpose. Faith is necessary to obtain the gift of righteousness. Confession is necessary to prove that this gift is received. If a man does not confess Christ at the hazard of life, character, property, liberty, and everything dear to him, he has not the faith of Christ. That's a strong statement. Now, we believe sola fide, faith alone, a wonderful reformation truth, and yet Jesus has reminded us that very faith alone that he's even given to us should be accompanied with a profession of that faith we've received, a declaration, we are his, I follow him, he is all that I long for and desire. Even the thief on the cross in Luke 23. Think about what happened on the cross with the thief and Jesus side by side. Even the thief confessed with his mouth that he deserved death himself and that Jesus himself was innocent. He de declared that Jesus was innocent and that he deserved the death that he was going to receive. And then what did he do? He pleaded for Jesus' mercy. He pleaded for his mercy. He longed for Jesus' forgiveness. He was confessing that very moment his faith in Jesus. Because all he did was put his trust in the only one he knew that could save him. Not physically, but forever, eternally. Even the thief professed as he received faith that very minute. You see, confession and belief are linked inseparably. But also, there's another linking, and Paul speaks of this, this chain link of bringing the good news. Verse 14, he says, <clears throat> And how then can they call on the one they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard and hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So this chain link going from calling and ending up with sending or going, this is a chain that Paul describes so very clearly. You know, there's two other places in the book of Romans. If you've never read the book of Romans, it's a wonderful book to read through, about 16 chapters. won't take that long, but it is quite meaty in truth and understanding. But you read through, you'll see two other places before you get to chapter 10, in chapter 5 and in chapter 9, where you see other chain links of truths that Paul has, that God has put together through the Apostle Paul, and he describes those. But those two chains in chapter 5 and chapter 9 are progressive chains. They go from the beginning and they work through the end. 
of the result. This chain is what? The opposite. It starts at the end, the result of what it should be, and goes back to the origin of the beginning. It's a regressive chain, just the opposite. Paul uses this literary method of going backwards, starting with the end and working back. From calling to believing, believing to hearing, hearing to proclaiming, proclaiming to sending and going. In verse 13, he speaks about calling. We've already examined this, but calling on Christ with our mouth, speaking and calling on who he is, is essential in our belief and our faith. That we profess, we call on the Lord because we've been given the faith to believe and to call out his name. Verse 14, believing is the next part in the regressive chain, going back to the beginning. Calling on the Lord can only happen if you truly have this faith that we've just described. Believing and putting our trust in Jesus' word and his work. Just having an intellectual assent, just your mind, is, is not enough. If you just with your mind say, yeah, I, I believe that there was a guy named Jesus. I kind of I agree that, you know, he was a guy who died on a cross and, you know, I wasn't there, but I guess I could believe that maybe he didn't commit any bad things while he was alive that anyone knew about. And you kind of go down that path mentally. Well, guess what? Good for you. You've done something in believing something. But you haven't truly given yourself to trusting what that really means and what it's all about. Merely just giving some mental gymnastics to something that you've heard or read or thought about regarding this person named Jesus, that's not truly giving yourself and trusting him with all that you are. That's not real belief. That's not true faith. We must commit our hearts. We must trust fully to have faith that is saving faith. Verse 14, he goes from believing now, he says, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Interesting how this phrase, this question in verse 14 is worded. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? If you go back to the original language as it was written, this is where the new NIV translation, the New International Version, would probably not do, good, uh, not do it justice. Because they put the little word of in here, in this verse, that probably should not be there. The word of. Why is that so important? Because if you read it this way, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard versus how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? There's a big difference. What's the difference? The difference is this. Because Christ himself, by his own spirit, must speak personally to you in a relationship, and it's personal, then we must believe in the one who speaks to us, not about him, but speaking to him and with him directly in that relationship. That's why it's so important. How can we believe in one whom we have not heard from directly is the question that Paul's asking. And the answer is we can't. 
If Jesus hasn't spoken to your heart, you cannot believe in him. If he hasn't spoken to you, if he has not given your heart reason to understand, embrace, trust, and give yourself to, then you will not do it. You have no desire for him. If you're sitting here right now and you have no desire for Christ, pray, God, please give me a desire for you. Ask Jesus to give you his very person, his word. Ask him. If you desire him, he will come. Because you will never have a desire for him unless he places it within you. He gives you that desire. May we only in our hearts receive it, receive that desire. You see, we hear Jesus through his word, which is proclaimed, as he calls us to himself and gives us his very life. He breathes life into our dead souls and gives us life. So hearing from him is the next link in this chain, which then connects us to the next point, proclaiming. Verse 15, how can they preach, how can they hear, rather, in verse 14, without someone preaching to them or proclaiming to them? How can, you, how can you believe, how can you hear unless someone is giving you the truth of the gospel? A very obvious question. You see, in Paul's day, preaching, proclaiming was the methodology primarily of the gospel going out. An audible voice speaking in groups, in crowds, preaching, proclaiming who Jesus is, what he has done, that was how it went. Whereas today, we have lots of forms of communication, of media, both electronically, the written word, all, all types of ways, not only when someone speaks with their voice, proclaiming the message of the gospel. And so proclaiming, it must be proclaimed clearly, so it is heard. But then it links back to the final, most important part of the chain. The end of the chain, or rather the beginning of the chain, if you look at it the other way, which is those who proclaim Christ, those who preach, who proclaim, and not preaching in the sense of what I'm doing right now, but simply even proclaiming must be sent, must go. That must happen. If no one goes, then no one will speak, no one will proclaim, and if no one proclaims, no one will hear, and if no one hears... They will not believe, and if they do not believe, they will never call upon the Lord Jesus. That's the way that God has structured the proclamation of the gospel. That's how his design is. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's Christ's design. It's his truth, his plan for us. Those who proclaim Christ must be sent. Those who send others to proclaim Christ must also go. It's not just that we send others, but I'm fine. I'm here. I'm just going to send someone else to do that work. Our missionaries in Mexico, in Thailand, in South Asia, wherever they are, Cartersville, those are our missionaries. We send them. We support them. We pray for them. But that's not where the work should stop. There's much work right here next 
to where we live, in our backyard, in Blue Springs, in Ackworth, in Kennesaw, in Cobb County, in Metro Atlanta, wherever you are, there is so much opportunity for those to hear and to believe and then to call upon the Lord. We must clearly go and sin together. Jesus intentionally reminds us that all his disciples are to go into the world. John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says these words. To his father he was praying, and he said, Father, sanctify them. Who are, who's them? His brothers and sisters in the family of God, the children of God. Sanctify them, Father, by the truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, Father, I've sent them into the world. I've sent them. His disciples, those who follow him, those are sent. Who are they? It's us. It's all of us. We've all been sent by Jesus himself into the world. We really have. It's not just about February's missions month that we think about sending. That's only four weeks out of 52. And even during those four, hopefully we're just reinvigorated towards being the ones ourselves who already have been sent by Christ into our world we live in every day. Wherever you go to work, that is your mission field. Wherever you are in your house, your neighborhood, that is your mission field. Your family is your mission field. Whoever has breath and life, walks, speaks, hears, that is our mission field. Whoever and everyone. God has called us, Jesus has called us to be bringing the good news. We are part of this chain. We are so much part of that chain that Paul describes in bringing the good news. There's a phrase in our final thought that goes like this. Beauty is as beauty does. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe not. Beauty is as beauty does. Now, that kind of goes contrary when we think about the concept of beauty, does it not? Beauty is as beauty does. Beauty doesn't do, does it? Beauty just is, isn't it? Well, when you think of something that's beautiful, you describe it aesthetically, do you not? That's a beautiful flower. That's a beautiful lady. That's a beautiful architecture or building or a beautiful sky or any aspect of creation you describe a painting possibly as a beautiful work of art in all these things you're describing something for what it is that's how we generally think of something that's beautiful nothing wrong with that absolutely it reminds us of the beauty of the creator in all things when we see the beauty for what it is but that's not what Paul is bringing up when he talks about something that's beautiful. In fact, Paul says in verse 15, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Feet? Really, Paul? Feet? How many think you have beautiful feet? Let's see your hands. Come on. 
Oh, I see a couple. Thank you very much. Well, when you think about a body part, do you think about your, uh, that's beautiful, whether on someone else or on you? Does feet come to mind? Don't answer that question for some of you. But for most people, it's not your foot. It just isn't. I mean, you got the toes and you got, it's just kind of, you know, it's not what you would say just beautiful. It's more what? Functional. The foot is a body part that's functional. In fact, in the day when Paul was writing this, the last thing someone would think of as being beautiful would be feet because in their day, what do they wear? Either nothing, barefoot when they walked, or sandals, dirty, filthy, always in the dust, always in the dirt, constantly having to have their feet, washing their own feet, having when they come inside from, into a home, a washing of someone's feet just to cleanse off from the long journey. I mean, feet were not a beautiful thing. It was just the opposite. It was the last thing they would think. So when Paul says this, he's really drawing them to understand something here. Very significant. That's why he's using this particular thought. How beautiful are the feet. You see, beauty, Paul is describing, is a functional beauty, not an aesthetic one. It's a functional beauty that Paul wants us to get to understand. And it's a function as it relates to bringing the good news. That is the function that Paul's trying to get us to understand. As we bring the good news, it is a beautiful thing. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. It's like when a golfer or a baseball player makes a perfect swing and connects with the ball perfectly. One would say, that's a beautiful thing. Why? It's a functional beauty that happens in that second. That's what he's talking about. Dr. C. Everett Koop, maybe some of you remember that name, used to be the United States Surgeon General, okay? He was also a strong believer, from what I understand, in his faith. He was the chief surgeon at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia in his prime as well. Dr. Koop said that working with a nurse in surgery who anticipated and knew his every move was such a satisfying experience when he was in surgery. And he always appreciated that teamwork, that compatibility that that person provided when he was seeking to do a very difficult surgical procedure. So, every Christmas, Dr. Coop would make and hand deliver and place a sign over the door to the operating room in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And it said this, through these portals pass the most beautiful girls in the world. Or guys, if they're nurses, I guess. And he would put that up there. And he said, the nurses knew that I appreciated the beauty of all the things that they did to make possible our success together in the operating room. He did that every single year because he really wanted them to know how much he valued their functional beauty and what they did how they did it. So, when we say beauty is as beauty does, here's what we mean. As a believer, as a follower of Christ, as one who has called out that Christ is my Lord and Savior, as we do what Jesus calls us to do, namely, bring the good news to those who need to hear it and to receive it, then 
it is a beautiful thing. It is beauty working itself out right before us. One of the most important truths about bringing this good news with, our, with a functional beauty is also understanding that Jesus has removed barriers. You see, removing barriers, Paul's reminding us, helps our own hearts to be motivated to take the good news. Finally, Paul says in verses 11 through 13, anyone who believes will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, in the Roman church, it comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Some say it was almost exclusively Jews. Others would say it's fairly mixed. We really don't know exactly, but certainly it had both. We know that. And what Paul is describing here is that, listen, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever ethnic background, wherever you're coming from, whatever socioeconomic, whatever barriers seem to be present, God has removed all barriers. He has removed all those things that cause a barrier between he and that very person that he is seeking to bring to himself. He's reminding them of just how the gospel removes all barriers as we seek to do the work of sharing the good news. Verse 12, he says, for there is no difference there's no difference. You see, a Jew would not be in a better position with God, as Paul describes it, than a Gentile. Though they come from the line of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament times, all the way bringing forward now to the times of Paul, having that heritage certainly is a blessing. But Paul is saying that heritage is, makes you no better in a position before God than one who has never had such heritage, a Gentile. He reminds them, and so, we are also no better than anyone around us. We have to be reminded of this. This will give us the desire to share the good news even more greatly, that you and I are no better than anyone else around us. If you feel that because you are a believer and you live your life a certain way towards righteousness, and you look upon others down through your nose at them with some disdain on how they don't live out their Christian faith or how they're not living for Christ, but you are, you've missed the gospel yourself. You've missed what grace and forgiveness is for your own soul. No one who's received such forgiveness from our Savior could ever look at someone else with the judgment and say, they're just not doing what they need to be doing with great disdain. Certainly someone without Christ needs to hear, but we must take that good news willingly with hearts that realize we're no better. We're no better than anyone that we share this good news with. Our motivation has to be this very and last thought that Jesus has removed the barriers between us and him. And because he's removed those barriers between you and himself, that should give us the motivation to also take that good news and share it with others that they see there is no barrier any longer between them and the one who created them. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he, that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's destroyed the barrier. There is no barrier any longer between you and the Father. Between you and God, there is no hindrance anymore because your sin, which was the hindrance, has been dealt with on the cross. It's been paid for. Your moral debt, that is an eternal debt, has been dealt with. It's been paid for in full, and there is no longer a barrier between you and God. Christ has done that. That's got to be our motivation because I receive and accept understanding, trust in that truth, the gospel itself, then I can also. And I must share that same good news with those who also need to receive Jesus. Beauty is as beauty does. How beautiful Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news. 